Good morning. Um, for those I haven't met, my name is Sarah. My Dharma name is Dojin, which means path of love. And I use she, her pronouns. And I am not a fan of the gender binary. <laughs> I, I think it has caused much harm. Um, and still, in a non-dualistic way, I, I love claiming femaleness. Um, what I'd like to talk today about is um, meeting violence with transformational love. And I started thinking about wanting to talk about this during our, um, I mean, maybe always, but particularly during our last retreat, which was at the beginning of December, um, which is a retreat we do every year that celebrates the Buddha's enlightenment. And um, I got to talk one-on-one -on -one with a lot of people about their life of practice. And um, one of the things that to me seems very alive in our Sangha and probably in the world, but, but you know, I, I get to meet it with you in the Sangha, is this question of how do we practice with suffering? This is a classic Buddhist question. <laughs> this is what it's all about. Like, how do we practice with suffering? And then particularly, how, how do we, in an upright and, and skillful way, um, meet violence? And I want to name that. I feel like it's really important to understand that violence is always happening, and it's always happening on many, many levels. And you know, so the, the obvious ones where people are viciously harming one another all the way through, you know, relationships, all the way through, all the way down, actually, I would say, into like our cellular being and our thoughts and the, the stuff that's been conditioned into us that comes from a lot of places. <laughs> if we grew up in the United States, um, I mean, also if we grew up other places, I can just speak to the experience of growing up in the United States that this is a country that... Um, where the dominant culture really courses with violence and lots of different kinds of it. Um, and I've, I can, again, speaking from my own experience, I can see how these external cultural violences abide in even my most intimate of thoughts, even the ones about myself. And, and that our work as bodhisattvas or wisdom beings is to... Um, is to find a way to meet that. And I think um, most transformationally is to meet that with love, like, like not soft, but like fierce love that um, says, mm, stop, that's enough. I won't continue to participate. Um, and, and when I've been thinking about this over the past month or so, what I also feel is this deep intention that, that we develop communities generally, and that this Sangha in particular um, continues to grow in our capacity to be a community where how we relate to one another is constantly teaching us how to do that. And, um, and so, so that I had this image of, of really wanting to talk about how, like, like, please let us figure out a way 
to address the violence all the way down to the way it is like in our bodies and in our minds and in our psyches and our hearts. And that the only way we can really do that transformationally is to do that in community with one another. Like to be in relationship to other people where we are supporting each other to do that. Um, which means we have to relate. <laughs> it means we have to risk. It means we have to trust one another enough. Enough. It means we have to um, be open to harm that we will cause. I well, again, speak for myself, like the conditioning that I have means that I cause harm. I don't want to do that. It's not what's aligned with my heart, but it's really clear to me at this point. My karmic conditioning around a lot of identities, particularly around being a white American, means that I, well, I do cause harm. And in the community Sangha context, um, building enough, there, there, there's an effort of building enough trust that I can receive feedback about that and I can uh, hear it and I can be changed by it and I can sometimes offer it and that we can be in a, a vital exchange with one another um, that has a different flavor than domination and violence that comes from dominant culture. Um, at some point along the way, I think I wasn't sure actually when I was giving a talk, I became aware that I'm giving a talk on this Saturday, which is before the Monday that celebrates the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and then I thought, oh God, <laughs> oh geez, you know, I, it's, it's tricky um, for a white woman, Zen priest. I mean, there's just, there's a lot happening here that's, <laughs> that is challenging to skillfully um, make an offering around something like the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and, I, and I also um, feel like we absolutely have to, and, um, and not just because his birthday is around this time and we celebrate that as a federal holiday, but because we have to do that all the time. And then I thought, oh yeah, like I'm already thinking about transformational love, meaning violence, <laughs> um, which you know has. I was remembering actually that in my life, one of the first times I really studied the teachings of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was in um, my senior year of high school, where I was taught feminist and liberation theology. Thankfully, um, so in that context of liberation theology, I really got to study, begin to study. Um, one of the, another tricky part about bringing forward Dr. King on, on a day like today is um, that it might, I don't want it to ever sound like, oh yeah, we just do this once a year, you know, all the time, all the time. We weave the teachings of living bodhisattvas into our uh, awareness. Um, there's Thich Nhat Hanh, for folks who know him, Tignahan and Dr. King only met a couple times, but they, they had, there's a whole book actually about their relationship called uh, Brothers in the Beloved Community. And Tignahan wanted Dr. King to know that in Vietnam, people considered him a living bodhisattva. Um, and you know, what a, what a gift that there are American bodhisattvas. And, and so in this American Sangha, we weave in these teachings, we weave in that, the, the grace of his offering all the time, knowing, you know, knowing 
he was a real person. <laughs> he was not a perfect person. The other thing I realized that was weighing on my heart was that, um, you know, there's this federal holiday and it's like, and then Dr. King's being celebrated all over the place and how it can, that all of that can skip over that at the time that he was alive, um, his teachings of transformational love were extremely threatening. Mainly like, I mean, to many people, but, but to government officials, many government, people in government, people in power, mainly white people in power. Um, and because of that, they were extremely threatening to him, to his well-being. It's arguable that he was, his murder flowed from um, the sanctioning of violence toward him and other civil rights leaders. Um, and there's a way that there's just this like, you know, complicated irony of the federal government being like, we lift up Dr. King, when, a, when in his lifetime, um, they were, they, uh, we, I don't know, this, the government of this country was a force of uh, tremendous and mortal threat, you know. Um, and, and trauma, you know, so even the folks that survived that time, uh, I, I, you know, I imagine like, I don't know, I've heard some of what it did to his family, but to just to hold that too, you know, as we honor that that's a piece of the puzzle of this American Bodhisattva, that he was under tremendous threat as he was teaching about transformational love. Um, which made me, which made me really feel in my body the way that um, transformational love is is th still threatening to many people in power, and that many people in power explicitly or implicitly sanction violence against people who are trying to create a world of equity and of decency for and goodness for everybody, and that's still quite quite active today. So I think uh, maybe the, the, the first root of these, all these thoughts I've been having was this idea of resistance. And what like, how important it is to resist forces of, um, I wanna say evil. <laughs> Or, or delusion, and um, and how and and also wanting to talk about together with you of, of like how we do that in in this practice in Zen in particular how this practice supports us in um, uprooting delusion of all kinds. As I was spending some time this week looking at the relationship between um, the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh and and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, I was. I came across some quotes from Thich, a letter Thich Nhat Hanh wrote to Dr. King, talking about um, the monks who had self-immolated, so had had burned themselves in an offering of anti-violence in, in Vietnam. And what Thich Nhat Hanh said was, "We believe the Buddhists who have sacrificed themselves, like the martyrs of the civil rights movement, do not aim at the injury of their oppressors." but at the changing of their policies. So that part is super important. You know, that, the, that the Bodhisattva effort is to discontinue, to interrupt 
the flow of violence and violation of other people while very uprightly being like, and this thing cannot continue. This policy can't go on. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh goes on to say, the enemies of those struggling for freedom and democracy are not, and I'm going to change it to people from man, if that's okay, are not people. They are discrimination, dictatorship, greed, hatred, violence, and delusion, which lie in the hearts of people. These are the real enemies of human beings. And so there's this, and, and I think, um, and, and then later he says, uh, please do not kill people, even in other people's names, even to save other people. Please kill the real enemies of human beings, which are present everywhere and in our very hearts and minds. For people who have taken the Buddhist precepts, the first grave precept is the cherishing of life. So sometimes just like a disciple of Buddha does not kill, but rendered in the positive is a disciple of Buddha cherishes and protects life. Um, so using the word kill, I think on Thich Nhat Hanh's part, I imagine was very deliberate. But to kill, to cut off and interrupt the delusion that allows people to dehumanize one another. Externally, yes, definitely. So please go to protests and write letters and yell when you need to and stand up and interrupt behaviors. And then at the same time, I, I want to hold for us the deep uh, commitment. And again, like in the body of like supporting one another in, in the body of Sangha, that we also constantly and diligently do that internally. And that we are... Um, yeah, diligently watching for when our certainty about what behaviors are not okay leaks over into being like, and so those people aren't okay. Because then we're caught, we're, we're caught also in the karma of the violence of dehumanizing. And, and also because I get to talk to people about their practice. And I also have the the gift of, of practice and being helped along in practice for myself and I watch my own mind, I'm going to risk saying that most of us do this internally to ourselves as well. So when we see a behavior, when we're, when, so for example, when we're feeling like, you know, we see an image of a child being crushed under a building and we're like, this cannot be, this can't keep happening. And then we feel, and then it's like, and then, and it, the people who are doing it are bad. <laughs> and then, which, you know, okay, a legitimate thought. And then the next thought we have is, oh, I'm not supposed to think people are better. <laughs> now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna crush this part of myself. There we are, like in the in this in a cycle of violence. And I and I think truthfully that cycle I'm describing happens a lot more subtly and a lot more often than that, you know. But just like the the ways we berate ourselves internally and diminish ourselves internally and and kind of almost like you know people we recently watched the the fourth harry potter and, and so for those who have seen the harry potter movies where there's the image of dumbledore he like puts a wand to his head and he pull he's pulling out memories <laughs> that we do that like like it's like oh there's a there's a thread of of domination culture in me i'm going to pull it out and i'm going to get it out in front of me 
And then, and I want to say like this to me is the, the Bodhisattva Zen spin on it. I'm going to love it. Not the only, I mean, Christians do this too, but you know, other people just do, but I'm going to love it. That, this, that, our, that our commitment is get it out in front and then meet it with love. Understand that it's violence that we've just unearthed in our own psyche. That's been sewn into us from you know, generations. And, and maybe there are things we can point to in our one lifetime where we can see, sometimes we can investigate, like how did that thought get there? And sometimes we can't because a lot of this kind of, these ways of thinking have actually been born into us almost like epigenetically and ancestrally. But still, in our lifetime, with the, with the support of one another and the support of practice, we can get it out in front and, and, and go, okay, <laughs> I vow to cherish you. And I also vow to uh, not allow you to keep causing harm. When I was thinking about um, like what, what, what in particular happens in uh, dominate, dominant culture that, that then gets into us, you know, I was remembering this, this great um, tool that's out there on the internet that's a, a document called White Supremacy Culture Characteristics. Have people seen this? It's written, um, it's often out there as written by Tema Okun and um, her mentor, Kenneth Morris. So Tema Okun is a white American woman. I think she has like partially Jewish heritage. And um, I think she, so originally she and her mentor came up with these descriptions of white supremacy culture because it, it, as a tool that they use in equity trainings in um, organizations. And um, this was originally uh, made in 1999. And, and I'll tell you about that characteristics in a minute. I just, I, I, was grateful this week to spend time with. Um, so, so what happened was uh, 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 there was a resurgence of it circulating, particularly after um, George Floyd's murder and people wanting to be like, you know, these are the characteristics. And also it's been uh, quite misused and um, quite misappropriated. <laughs> you know, she was like, this was never supposed to just be floating around by itself. It was a tool that we used in relationship with people in, in you know, in, um, trainings. So she um, created a website that's like a living, now a living document of this. And it's called, let me tell you, uh, whitesupremacyculture.info. Um, and she said, you know, I, I wanted to update it and I wanted to add a lot of other voices in. And also um, I didn't want to do it as a book because I didn't want it to be fixed because this, this looking at dominant culture and like what it is and what it does to all of us is an ongoing living process. So she wanted it to be a website, first of all, so that it could be widely available, but also so that it could be continually uh, nourished by the feedback that she receives and others give and that, you know, like, and it can change. And I, like that alone to me sp speaks of something that's transgressive of white supremacy culture. It's not a fixed, she's not like, here they are, <laughs> done, you know. <laughs> to me, this idea of uh, here's the problem, here's the solution, done, is, to, is in my experience very much dominant culture kind of thinking. And I see myself and particularly others who are white acculturated being like, um, so how do I just like finish <laughs> with the pain, with responding to the pain in the world? 
And the answer is we don't. It's, an, it's like we always, we're always engaging and it's always changing. And the more we um, commit ourselves to resisting um, domination culture, the more, the more we become receptive to being changed by like people saying like, hey, that thing you said didn't really work. Okay, okay, let's then how, and please tell me and thank you for the gift. Um, so I recommend checking out this website if if you haven't and you're interested. And in terms of Zen practice, I actually recommend being interested <laughs> um, if you live in the United States. Um, I, a couple of years ago, if I said white supremacy culture, I would check and be like, do people know what I'm talking about? Is anyone freaking out? Do people think I mean neo-Nazis? Um, I don't mean neo-Nazis, not that they're not somewhere on a spectrum of white supremacy culture. What I mean by that is just, is, is the dominant culture of this country in particular and the people that have had power from the inception of you know, what we call the United States. Um, and I've also known uh, Joe Biden a couple days ago in a, in a speech in South Carolina at the church where um, people, nine people were murdered in their prayer group was talking about the, a poison in our culture. And he said, and what is that poison? White supremacy culture. I'm like, Joe Biden's saying <laughs> It has made it into, I think, uh, you know, we can say it without freaking out. And it simply means the elevation of white cultural norms over others. So the supremacy of white cultural norms. And then of course, you know, I do know, so it's okay if you're like, yeah, but what is even whiteness? And, it, you know, this is a very complicated field of reality. And yet it is sometimes really helpful. Uh, it's, it's, it's tricky because we might get into a, a, a binary when we do it. And at the same time, sometimes I think it's really helpful that we name what are we actually talking about? Like, what are, what are the things that are internally and externally oppressive? What are the ways of thinking that keep systems of oppression and domination going? Again, both externally and then in me. Like for myself, I wanna know what these are because I can see how I am complicit. I don't want to be, but I have been conditioned to be. And so if I can't name them, I can't, you know, I can't do the, the magic Dumbledore thing. <laughs> Get it out in front. So the, the things that she named in that original um, paper in 1999, and then and then talks about in with with great detail, and then also brings in all these other voices in her website, and um, and talks also really clarifies of like these all interact with each other; they're not separate. So that's an important piece too. But here's some of the things we can name: fear, and lots of variations of it. <laughs> a, a feeling of one right way of things, perfectionism. And paternalism is also named as part of that one right way. I was remembering this teaching about the strict father model that is one way of a, a way of looking at politics in the United States and ways of thinking, strict father. Uh, the either or or the binary. This should be very interesting to Zen students. <laughs> Binaries or dualisms are, are what, what we work with all the time to complicate and make more complex. When we know, so when we notice ourselves falling into binaries, we, we, we utilize the practice. We come into our bodies and we ground ourselves and then we soften 
and we let things get more complicated, or we can even just compassionately notice that our mind would like to make them more simple and then and love that, but but also interrupt the flow of it. You know, don't let it don't run too far with a binary. Um, denial and defensiveness, the right to comfort and the fear of conflict. And as a white, a white acculturated person myself, I will say that like, I'm amazed at the level of value that this is given, that I can see in my own life, that a right for comfort and like an insistence that people not be made uncomfortable, I have seen it take value over caring for people over the truth, over um, uprightness, over wisdom. So I feel like that one's not to be dismissed. It's quite dangerous, the right to comfort. Individualism, this one is one that, that even in all many systems of thinking is just conflated with dominant culture in the United States. What do you, what do you call Rugged, <laughs> rugged individualism, bootstraps and like you know cowboys <laughs> <clears throat> and you know and and then again like can we look for ourselves how does that the cowboy <laughs> i can say for myself it lives in me as a good thing you know it's like a something i'm supposed to be uh, okay there's a couple more um progress is more or quantity over quality and and a way of opening that is like an idea of efficiency being more important than a, of human relationship and what's actually happening to people. Um, and worship of the written word. So if something's written, although I think this is starting to blow up as now our reality is getting quite variable. Um, and also urgency. And then other folks have added uh, to this and, and now it's included in, in what Tema Oken has on the website is um, Another, or, or a piece that comes out of a lot of these is a, a way of thinking about things that is a scarcity mindset. And I'll share a little bit from um, Christina River Chapman, who is part of the Earth Seed Land Collective. Um, she said, white supremacy culture is so common and widespread, the invisible ocean we all must tread. Mi abuela likened the gravity, likened it to gravity in conversations about the US imperialism in Latin America. So it's, so it's so pervasive, it's like gravity, it's touching all of us. This ocean deeply informs what we think and feel and even how we think and feel. It has to, it's a matter of sink or swim. And for some of us, sink means to drown. While white supremacy and structural racism are not simple, I would say that at the end of the day, what white supremacy culture needs me and us to believe is this one thing, that the only way for me to swim is for someone else to sink. So that kind of thinking, that, that really describes scarcity thinking. That there's not, we can't collectively thrive. We have to crawl over one another. There's a, a beautiful book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee that talks about like scarcity mindset. Like, so this is one where she pulled from her <laughs> brilliant mind, like, oh, it's that way of thinking that has gotten in the way of, uh, she's a public policy person, public policies that would benefit everybody, but because there's that mind of thinking that says, 
some people have to be drowning. Some people, like my own, my success depends on crushing others. That that policies that would benefit everyone consistently get shut down, and particularly along racial lines. She's looking at that in the United States because of um, because of, because people have been because of the delusion that we're separate and that our well-being depends on on you know like protecting what's ours and not allowing others to have a fullness. She uses the image of, throughout the book, she uses the image of these public pools that once they became desegregated in certain parts of the country, people would just fill them up with sand. Nobody gets a pool, you know, and that, and that there were people, so that, like, what is the delusion that's working there that makes it seem like a good idea? And then it was like, well, then all the white people got pools in their backyard and because they could move to the suburbs. And, but there, you know, it was just this way of crushing collective good because of a delusion that says that, that scarcity is real. Um, I've also was, I've been listening to a book that um, my, my beloved cousin, who's also a public policy person in Washington, recommended called How We Show Up by Mia Birdsong, which is also so brilliant. And it's about, it's about communities and relationship and leadership, actually. It's about, in some ways, it's about power. Um, but most of her books, she's talking about people, she lives in the, um, the Bay Area around in California. She's, she's interviewing people about the ways that people have created different um, communities and resources of, of um, chosen family in many cases. But she really is, again, like, so she's, she's talking about these things that are quite intimate, like people that have learned to um, transgress that, that momentum around individualism and have figured out how to like, like get through that <laughs> and find one another and work together for their collective good. And so what she's describing is sometimes very intimate places, but also what she's talking about is a shift of power and the way that these, these you know, seemingly intimate relationships actually shift culture and that shifting culture shifts power structures. And, um, and that too has been very much in my heart. And, and um, in some ways, I feel like what we talked a lot about in the fall when we, in, in our practice intensive this fall, we were talking a lot about non-duality and how we, um, one of the ways we can engage non-duality is to look at even the tiniest of things even that we do and that we care for understanding the relationship that these have to all things. You know, that, and then we finish the practice period with celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment. And the Buddha's enlightenment in our tradition is um, when the Buddha wakes up, it's the waking up to the way that everybody wakes up. So it's this dynamic between what looks like minutia and what looks like planetary impacts. And that we care for things on all levels. So we care. So. So then, so we could hear this list of white supremacy culture characteristics. Sorry, it was a little diluted by all my commentary, <laughs> but you know, you can go check it out again. Or, or we can, or we can even have um, our own. Our, we can come to our own revelations about like what are the things, what are the hindrances. I felt so joyful this morning when we were chanting the Shosai Myo Kichijo Durani. I was like, all of our voices 
that is a, that's an incantation to remove hindrances and obstacles that we were doing together. And, and may some of the obstacles that we're removing be the ones that keep us from fully meeting with love all the violences we encounter internally and externally. Um, and then again, I want to emphasize that, that we're, as bodhisattva practitioners, so this is a Zen, Soto Zen is a bodhisattva school of, of Buddhist practice, which means um, that we, as, we aspire to lend ourselves to bringing wisdom and compassion into the world. And, and elementally, it also means, you know, like, that we, that we promise to keep coming back here to this realm of suffering. I always get a, a kind of a kick out of when we all do the Eheko Sohutsugaman, and I'm like, people who are just here for the first time are like vowing throughout lifetimes. <laughs> like, it's okay if you want to mumble that the first few times. <laughs> if you're like, I don't know about this. Um, and and that we, so we so we do this thing. We get things out. We get these pieces of what's happening in our own internal mind out in front of us, and um, and then we get super diligent. Like if we meet that, if we mess up, you know, we find ourselves messing up, and we meet it with shaming and blaming. Um, it's not going to help. Like I just want to say this practically speaking. <laughs> Plus, like, shame causes a bunch of other harm. But somewhere, as I've been thinking about the last few days, I was like, if shame was going to be transformational, we would live in a transformed world. <laughs> Do you know? There's so much of it. It's so thick. It's so constant. You know, if blaming others was going to be transformational, we would live in a transformed world. Judging others, we, it would all be done. We'd be living in a... <laughs> My son just learned about utopias. A utopia. Um, so, so we have to get really diligent about um, that, you know. And and so, so here's here's the thing that happens for myself often. I do something, I've messed up. I've let people down, or I've I've it's, you know I've thought something racist. I've said something racist. Like I notice, I'm like, oh crap. Now the shame engine kicks in because I'm conditioned. Now the next thing that happened is now I'm blaming myself for having shame. I'm like, well, that's not going to be helpful. <laughs> You know, so the, the interruption is, is um, one thing I want to say that we can really, really utilize is this training in, in meditation. Zazen practice is really fundamental to Buddhist practice. It is fundamental to, to meeting violence with love in the sense that it, it's, it's training us to just arrive over and over again come into our body, have a body, notice what's there. Don't get on, don't get on the trains of explanation, just like just arrive over and over again. Oh, okay. So that has been a real resource, I'll say for myself after, you know, like, like 27 years of practice, I'm still, I notice I'm like going down a road. And actually one of the ways I notice I'm going down a road is I feel constriction in my body. And I've started to really try to track that, like blaming, you know, um, guilt, judgment, these things are go, uh, 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 uh. so I'm like, oh, something's tightening. And then the next, then, then Zazen, like regular Zazen practice helps me be like, uh, 
take a breath, feel my feet on the ground. Can I feel my belly? Can I have a body? Can I not leave? And then can I tenderly meet what's happened? I know, again, because there is real urgency, you know, there's the white supremacy culture urgency that's like deluded urgency, that's saying like, too busy for this. There was a study that of, of white men who were interested in anti-racist work, like why, but, but weren't doing it. So that people were asking them why. They were too busy, <laughs> too busy. Like when, we, when we're too busy to align with our values, no, try to notice that, you know, because that's the engine of white supremacy culture being like, I don't have time for this. Oh, I, I'm glad someone's doing it. But there is also, but then there's just the, the real, ur, there's a true urgency. Wait, this cannot go on. We cannot allow, we cannot continue to allow this dehumanization. Letting, but, and, and so feel that, and then, and then also know a skillful response is probably not going to come unless we can feel ourselves in our body, we can, we can ground ourselves, we have some breath, and we can locate some tenderness and sweetness about the situation, like, okay, I'm trying. <laughs> So another, uh, um, for me, another uh, very strong example of white supremacy culture as I've been acculturated is dissociation. Not attuning to my embodied experience. And actually, I, you know, I, can actually, I, I can remember moments, and these are particularly moments around noticing racial harm in my developmental life where I'm like, something's wrong, something's wrong. And I'm looking at all the adults and the message from the adults was like, don't pay attention. And, and the implicit message was like, don't have a body. There's too much variable stuff going on down here. It's too vulnerable. Have a mind, you know, fine. Your mind's fine. Intellectualize about it, you know, but don't trust your gut. And so again, I feel like Zazen practice is, an, is another piece of the training in Zazen is encounter your gut, <laughs> get really into your gut. And all that it is, you know, which includes your heart, our hearts, and our and our bones, and our knowing, our embodied knowing. And then every time we can do that, we we are transgressing, and we are and we are we are like lining ourselves with a different orientation to do something different than perpetuating more violence internally and externally. Um, I, I heard an, <laughs> there was a, um, an audio clip of uh, young, not young, people, some of them were young, I guess, on the Bay Bridge. Um, or this was in October, kind of early after this new wave of violence in, in Palestine uh, and Israel began. And people were protesting, they actually shut down the Bay Bridge. So they used their bodies and they put their bodies out there and stopped the traffic, you know, stop the urgency. You're not gonna go anywhere. We're gonna sit here and acknowledge the intensity of this violence and we're gonna say, please stop, you know. 
And um, in the audio, the, some of the protesters who were sitting were singing the song, which side are you on? Which side are you on? It just plays in my head often. And it's so, and I, I feel there's just something in, in my heart of Zen that is like, yeah, I get it. I get this, I get wanting to be on the right side. And I, but I think mo- maybe what's more important than that is, is to, how do we skillfully interrupt the harm? And can we find our discernment about that and our clarity of what needs interrupting without, con- without further dehumanizing? Because I could also hear in that song of like, maybe some of you aren't on the right, right side and you're bad, <laughs> you know? And it's so tricky. I don't mean to say that this is easy. But I just want to, I want to um, in, engage in myself and offer to do that with you, that we don't dehumanize anybody. We just don't dehumanize the humans. We, we can tease out the behaviors that need to be interrupted. And so um, I will finish with a quote from Dr. King that gets quoted a lot that I was like, oh, you know, I don't want to tokenize. I don't want to overdo, but, I, but here it is. It's like, it's so clear. Um, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In terms of our practice, what I want to say is um, also that though the conditioning of violence is thick and and a lot of it is old and, and sometimes can feel calcified and intractable, it isn't. We are changeable. We can change ourselves. We can change how we think. We can change um, the ways we think. We can change our habits. We can change uh, whether or not, we can choose whether or not we're complicit in harming. And, um, and And even these conflicts that have gone on for decades and feel intractable, they aren't because they're made by humans. And we are like mushy, malleable, changeable, you know, um, living beings. But for us to, to do that kind of fierce love, we need one another. We need to train in, in taking refuge in one another. So I hope we can always do that and, and lay the tracks so that people will keep doing that for long after we're gone. May our intention equally penetrate Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.